We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us for this episode is John Daly, former Dundee United and Rangers centre forward. He's now moved on to the coaching side. He's been with Hearts under 20s. He's been with Hearts first team. He's also doing his pro licence currently with the Scottish FA. Really interesting perspective on some things that we don't talk a lot about in the coaching journey so interested to get your thoughts on this one at Gary Kernin on Instagram at Gary Kernin on Twitter if you're looking for more content over the break we've got tons of free webinars they're almost coming at you every weekday please go to modernsoccercoach.com you can catch up on them there if you want to support Modern Soccer Coach during this time please consider ordering something from the shop coupon code msc special gets you 40 percent off this episode is brought to you by bounce athletics stay tuned for a special offer on balls and portable goals here is john enjoy john thanks so much for joining me today on the modern soccer coach podcast really excited to have you on no thanks very much for having me on gary really appreciate it we're going to start with something we've never discussed in the podcast it's always been a role that has uh, always brought up. I, th- I don't know if anyone's ever thought of it. It comes up a lot, and, and no one ever really talks about. It. That's the the interim role. How challenging is that a role to take initially? Because you're in a unique situation that it's an exciting role, manager's job, but then it usually comes at a tricky time and circumstances. The perspective of the change room might be different. But yeah. how are those first days? How do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think you're spot on. It is a unique situation. And I think when you look at it, you're you're being asked to take over for either, it's either one of two reasons. The team is either doing really well and the manager has, has moved on to bigger and better things. And, you know, you've been asked to step in a positive situation or, you know, the team has underperformed and, and unfortunately the manager has lost his job and, and you've been asked to step. So, like, you're right. On one hand, you're looking at the role and you're excited about the prospect of, of taking a first team and, and dealing with first team players and, and situations that, you know, present themselves. And the other hand, in the situation I was in, you know, you're disappointed for the manager having lost his job, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, nobody likes to, to see their manager lose their job. And I think the industry we're in, that's, you know, when results don't come, that's generally what happens um, at the end of it. So, you know, a manager losing his job generally leads to uncertainty in the group, which then, you know, you're then obviously cast into the the role of interior manager and you're having to try and settle the nerves. You know, from, from a player's point of view, you haven't been a player and, and in that situation where a manager has moved on, you know, you can sometimes think about yourself when you're a player and, and you know, you think about, you know, again, there's two types. You look at the player that's playing every week and now starts to think, Am I going to play? Am I going to be his type of player? You also have the players that maybe have been out in the cold that, you know, now are looking at the possibility of maybe getting an opportunity to play. So I think, you know, in that interim role, it it can be difficult to manage that and it can be difficult to, 
you know, again, you don't get any clarity on the length of time you're going to be in charge. So you, know, you can't really, you might have all these ideas going around in your head of what you would like to do if you took over a team and, and what way you would try and implement things. But sometimes you don't have that time. And I think the first couple of days for me in that situation were just to try and, you know, give the players some clarity on the situation and just say, look, what's happened has happened and, you know, we need to move on. Um, as, as hard as that can be for some of the players and, and as horrible as the industry is, you know, we you need to you need to focus. You've got, I think the first game we had was Celtic away. So, you know, it doesn't come much tougher than that in Scotland going, going to Parkhead and, and playing the champions. And um, yeah, so you're, you're trying to get a focus on the players and you're trying to get them to, to concentrate. And, and to be honest, I think the first couple of days, we just tried to make it the training lighthearted, a bit of fun, to try and take the mind off all the situation that was going on around the place. Um, you know, just to try and to try and you know get some some clarity back in their minds of of what they need to do. And you also have the staff as well. You know, the staff on the first team side as well that they can sometimes be forgotten. You know, I think obviously recently I've I've been through it, and I think you can sometimes forget what's going on in the staff's head as well, you know, that that they have they have that uncertainty now as well of, of, of their jobs and, and that can be difficult as well, you know, so uh, <laughs> you get thrust into this position and, and, and it sounds great and it sounds really good and, and I'm not trying to downplay it and, but you, you are excited about it and you are looking forward to it but there's a lot of responsibility comes with it because as I said, you, you don't know the length of time that you're, you're going to be there so yes, you want to stamp your own your own ideas, but sometimes don't get up that, that time to do that, you know? Yeah, we also probably, uh, to the detriment, well, definitely the detriment, we also think that footballers live in a world where, you know, the, the money takes care of everything and staff as well, so those insecurities or those watching other people suffer doesn't exist because you're going to go home to make more money than somebody else, but that you know what you're saying there is that that the same multi-million-dollar players, when they see someone lose their job, they're that affects everyone in the organisation and the team. Of course it does. Of course mm. it does. And I don't. I don't really think you know. I don't really think it matters at what level you play. Like you know, I think first and foremost, when you become a football player, you want to be a football player because you love the game. You're not doing it for for the money or the lifestyle. You know, you're doing it because you love the game. You love the sport, and you know, obviously, if you're exceptionally good then everything that comes with it is a massive reward. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, on a human level, when someone loses their job, it's never nice. And it's, you know, you always, it's the first people you think of are, are them people. And the, as I said, the industry at times can be can be quite unforgiving. And you really need to try and, you know, get get a focus back on what you need to do. And, you know, I, I think as a player, I, I always try, try to put, my teammates forced and my team forced probably to the detriment of myself but that was just the type of personality I was and as a, as a player and I, would, I wanted to win probably as a player you know more than have personal gain and, and personal success so um, so yeah I think I think yeah I, I don't think it really matters the level of, the levels of money you make and I think in Scotland especially like I don't think you know outside probably the old firm you're not Talking millions and millions of, of pounds that players are earning. Yes, they're earning good money, um, but yeah, it, it still it still puts uncertainty and, and mm-hmm. doubt in your mind. And and you know, as I said, 
you then you then start to worry probably about your your own personal situation. Mm. Again, the reality of it is as well the role that it's basically, you know what what it says to me is if you win, you're going to keep the job, and if you don't, <laughs> we're going to find somebody else. So like, do you just laugh that off and be like, you know, you're you're playing against Celtic, your first game. Like, is there part of you that thinks here? If we get a little rub of the green here, I could be, you know, this no, could. No, I think, yeah, I, I get what you mean, and, and I know what you're saying. I think, you know, personally, I think, you know, I have ambitions to be to be a manager one day, and and you know, I I just I look at myself, and I think, you know, I've I've had a long playing career, and I've, I've wanted to move into coaching, and I feel very very fortunate and very lucky that my, one of my first jobs in coaching was doing the twenties of Hearts, and um, to go in and work at that level, you know. As, as your first coaching job and to try and learn learn on the job there was was you know was exceptional so yes I have got ambitions to try and manage one day but I think I still think I've got so much to take in and try and learn and, and so much knowledge to try and get out of people and you know I, I like trying to learn off different people and you know so, so I think I've got so so much further got further to go on my journey for where I want to get to so if I had been asked Will you take the job? I would have 100% jumped at the chance, but at the same time, you know, if I'm being realistic and I'm being um, honest with myself, was I was I ready for that role at the at a club that size? Possibly not. Possibly not. But you're right. You know, if, if you win games of football, um, you know, you, you then put yourself in a position where the club maybe offers you the role. However, the the situation was and the circumstances surrounding the the job at that time were were so unique in the fact that like the the, the stand hadn't been complete, um, you know the the club were play, playing the first I think it was maybe five six seven games or something like that away from home, and the first four games were Celtic away, Kilmarnock away, Rangers away, Motherwell away, and they're four of the toughest in recent in the recent years at that time, the four of the toughest fixtures that the club had had and and in terms of results and. You know, picking up points. So, you know, if you'd asked me, was I was I really realistically expecting to win them games to get the job? I probably, honestly, probably would have said no. Um, but you know, I think you have to go in with the mindset that you can win the games. Obviously, as we said, Celtic away is is a ridiculously hard place to go, and 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 the way Brendan had the team playing at the time as well um, was was really tough. And as a coach, it was you know trying to trying to work out. You know, a strategy and a plan to try and get something at Celtic was was a great experience for me. Um, you know, I'd, I'd gone from preparing during the twenties for a bounce game, um, you know, to then getting a first team ready to go to Celtic Park. So it was a massive culture shock for me in terms of you know levels, you know, going up at different levels to to compete against different coaches and um, you know to come away get be four one. I think we were, we were, when I went four nil at sixty seven minutes, so I actually the worst you know <laughs> yeah we talk a lot about leadership in these podcasts and, and you mentioned there about learning from other managers and people you've played with uh we've we've also talked about we've had people on that have talked about being authentic and being true to yourself and yeah. looking looking at managers that you've played with the one that stands out to me is Ali McCoist because yeah he seems I remember him in question of sport. He was he was the funniest person on the panel. He, he's always seemed to be in the media having a joke and a laugh. But can that mm-hmm. can that 
personality of that humor? How does that manager look on the training pitch day to day? Or do they change? Do the jokes still come out? Yeah, I think Ali, Ali for me was, you know, he was someone that I really enjoyed working under. I think, you know, I think his personality traits and, and the personality that you see on the TV, that's that's the way Ali is. And I think, you know, if he was any different, it would have been weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So I think you kind of accepted him for, for what he was and who he was. And to be fair to Ali, you know, I felt that he had got staff around him that complimented him. Um, you know, he had Kenny McDowell as his as his assistant manager. He had um, Ian Durant as his first team coach. So, so I think they all complimented each other very very well. But, but I think the thing with Ali is, you know, having played at Rangers and, and then having been an assistant manager and and then probably gone into the management. So he, he understood more than most of the pressures that come with playing for a club of that size. So I think the way he was around the group probably helped, you know, in terms of dealing dealing with that pressure and and the players managing the expectations that came with playing at that club. I obviously didn't play at the same level as he did at the club. I was obviously playing in the lower leagues, but the expectations at the club were, were huge. Um, and and I think his his mannerisms and the way he conducted himself kind of helped take your mind off that I suppose um, you know when you're going into training you're enjoying enjoying training it's it's you know you're you're enjoying what you're doing and then when Saturday comes you kind of you kind of forget about the pressures that you're under um, and and the thing is with, with Ali like I I just always had the utmost respect for Ali um, in terms of you know when I was at Dundee United. We played them in the the Scottish Cup quarterfinal, I think it was, um, in 2010. It was actually the year that we went on to win the Scottish Cup with Dundee United. And Rangers had, had won the League Cup. They were on course to win the league. So, you know, it, it, they were realistically on course to do the treble. Um, and and we knocked them out in a, in a replay at Thanedice where David Robertson scored in the last minute. You know, so... It's something that always sticks in my mind. You know, that disappointment that he must have had that day after getting knocked out of the quarterfinals, he stood and waited for all of us. We've obviously celebrated the game as if we've won the cup. You know, it was a massive scalp for us and we were out on the pitch for 10, 15 minutes after the game with the fans. And I always vividly remember walking down the tunnel and Ali was waiting there to shake all the players' hands to, to congratulate us. Wow. You know, and then you and then you read, you know, the papers the next day and there's no there was no talk of... Or we underperformed, or um, you know, Dundee United, Dundee United only won because because we didn't play well. It was mm. it was all you know very you know very highly thought of the, the, the team that beat them, and he and he was very complimentary of Dundee United rather than like you know I've played against teams before where you know you maybe get a, a result and you feel like you deserve the result, and then you read the press the next day and the manager, the op- opposition is. Is saying that it was down to their team not performing, and, and you kind of think just just give us the credit we deserved. And I thought Ali was very good at that. He never, even when I was there as a player, like if if you maybe had a, a, a negative respo- uh, result or a performance, he never he never went and chucked anyone under the bus. Um, he was always complimentary of the opposition, which you know kind of protected the players. And I thought his man management and the way he dealt with situations like that was very astute and very clever. And and something that I thought was uh, the mark of the man himself, you know. 
Yeah, let's let's stay on that one then. The the post game, I suppose the yeah those comments after that you're say not throwing someone under the bus. Let's say let's say the manager does throw someone under the bus, which a certain uh, Portuguese manager has been known to do from time to time in recent months. Like, well, what? How does that work in a changing room? Is that the the boys are boys talking about that there or on the training pitch? Is it laughed at over the phone? Like, well, what's the process that goes on behind closed doors when when the manager does kind of yeah that they they go the other direction from a coist? Yeah, I, I think I think managers that do that, I think you know, I think I think we give you need to give them probably a bit of credit because I think sometimes sometimes they'll do with players that they know can can take it and will respond in the right manner. You know, like every player, every player has different personality traits and as I'm sure you well know and, you know, how you handle the players and how you deal with the players and how you how you work away to get the best out of the players. And, and some players respond to that. Some players will, will react in a way that, you know, they'll read it and they'll probably think, do you know what, I'm going to show him and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove to him that, that he's wrong and, and, so I think when managers do that, and I'm sure like if Jose goes and does that, I'm sure he's quite calculated in the way he does it, and he he wouldn't do it to someone who he felt this could this could bury him for the next couple of weeks, and you know. So I think I think when they when they do do it's, it's the same as when they come in at half time, and you know sometimes I know it's changed a lot, but sometimes when they come in at half time and maybe if they have a go at a certain individual, it can be quite calculated in a way that if I have a go at player X, I know that player Y will respond. Because he thinks, well, he's having a go with him. Does that, does that mm, make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's not John Sitton that's offering anyone on to, to fight them in the middle of changing room. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've actually I've seen it a few times in the changing room where you know you, the managers have come in and and it's kicked off and it, it, it's not good. Um, you know, I've actually had I've actually had to pick to get a manager up over my shoulder one time when he when he started on a, a player next to me. So. Um, I won't name the manager, but it was it was quite entertaining, and that's that's something that you know. I think if you're in a good environment, and you know, I think we all understand that the heat of the battle, and and you know, in any given moment, the wrong button is pressed, and someone can flip the lid. And, and I think I get that, and I think in the right environment, you know, as I said, a couple of days later, you're, you're probably laughing and joking about it with the manager and the player, and. You know, it just gets dusted under the carpet and you move on. We'll just take a quick break here. Coaches, if you're looking to raise your club's profile in the local community and give them a professional look this season, please check out NFHS and FIFA-approved custom-textured training balls and vests from Bounce Athletics. Fully customised with your logo and colour scheme and produced in the same factories as the global brand balls that you're already using, Bounce Athletics training balls feature a textured PU outer with hybrid seamless construction so they look, feel and play like match balls. With only 25 ball minimums, a quick four week turnaround and a two year warranty, Modern Soccer Coach podcast listeners can get a $50 discount on their first order of custom balls or training vests by mentioning the podcast when they email info at bounceathletics.com to begin the order process. Brings us on nicely to coach education. You're doing your pro license. 
we've we've had a few people on here, obviously Mark and and Craig. Um, wh what aspect have you enjoyed the most of the course? Um, I have to I have to say I have I've really enjoyed the course. It's been it's been great, and as I said, I'm I still look at myself as I'm still very early in my coach as development and my coach education, and I actually feel you know sometimes I think like I look at I think how have I managed to get on this course and. Um, I'm actually very grateful to be on the course. There's so many, there's so many good, um, good people on the course that will have great experiences. And I think what I really enjoy about it is, is you know, every event. I think we've had eight events just now. You know, being to the European Championships in the summer, and um, each event just brings something totally different. You know, I think when you go on your B license and your A license, a lot of it can be quite quite similar and I think with this one you know you get the, the itinerary maybe a week or two in advance and and it is always different and it ranges like from you know we've had some fantastic managers on we've had David Moyes on Derek McKinnis Steve Clark had Shelley Kerr on talking about the the women's world cup and how she prepared for that you know and then you go another time like I think within the last few we had um Kevin Coupland he was involved with the SAS and he was in you know, talking about the culture of the SAS and, and their training and their selection process. And then the last one just there, we had um, Alistair Campbell, the former press secretary for Tony Blair, yeah. um, just talking about how, how you know, the government and, you know, with the elections, how they, how they set objectives and strategies and the tactics that they use to try and get to get elected. So it, it just, it, it is really just, you know, mind-boggling when you're listening to these these people and the, the level of you know the levels that they've worked at and the different strategies and you know it, it is it is all linked in a, in a way and that's why I quite like the fact that you know it's not just it's not just you know football people telling you about football or you know football managers telling you about the different scenarios which to be fair David Moyes was different class you know talking about the different scenarios he had to deal with and you know asking us how we would deal with certain situations if they occurred. Um, so yeah, it, it is really, really good in terms of in terms of that. Um, I also I also enjoy the downtime. You know, when your when your brain is frazzled and you have a couple of maybe half an hour at lunch and you're talking to your candidates and you're just you know there's that as I said there's that many different candidates from from different walks of life and there's different you know different stages of their careers in in coaching and you know in, in management. Some are sporting directors, so. It, it gives you a good insight into other areas of football and other areas of, of the business side of it that um that yeah that that, that you probably didn't realize you know the depths that, that that the game goes into and and I think it's great just to have you know have a half an hour at times just chatting to them boys and and, and Pauline obviously the, the girl on the course that you know just speaking to them about how they go about their roles and and you know the struggles that they maybe have and how they deal with it, and you know because I, I firmly believe you can you can learn something from everyone. I think, and if you know if we can learn something from everyone that presents on the course and everyone who's been on the course, then you know you're going to come away with a wealth of knowledge that can only help you going forward. Yeah, we've had Greg Patterson on. Uh, it was brilliant. We we had a great chat about different people having different comfort zones, which I'd never yeah. thought of that concept before, and. I wanted to ask you what you know. Which element of the course has has probably pushed you a little bit outside your comfort zone the most? Yeah, well, that's that's something they talk about a lot. You know, Greg and um, Andy Gould talk about that all the time. And 
you know, they're, they're trying to challenge you individually and collectively, you know, to, to, to get outside that comfort zone. And, you know, I think for me, probably one of the hardest things was, you know, to stand up in front of the group. And I, I think I listened to Mark's, um, Mark on your podcast uh, a while back. I think he mentioned about it, you know, the, the three-minute presentation we had to do at the start, you know, uh, talking about yourself and introducing yourself to the group. And, you know, it can be quite daunting just standing up in front of your peers and, you know, just you know, opening up and, and, you know, it's not something that I was probably, you know, I, I left school at, at 15, so it's not something, you know, in terms of that being in that educational environment, it's not something that I was really used to, you know, and as I said, just standing up, trying to talk about yourself and, and three minutes isn't a long time, <laughs> but believe me, when you're standing up there, it feels like forever. You're waiting for that little buzzer to go off at the back of the room to tell you you're done, so... <laughs> Um, that was that was really really tough, um, and I found it very 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 um, very interesting. Then sitting and listening to other people and watching how they deliver, and and one thing that they they, they are big on as well, you know, getting outside your comfort zone is, you know, we then had to watch the they, they recorded these introductions that we done, and you then had to to sit sit at home watch the watch the footage of yourself. You know, believe you me, it wasn't it wasn't good viewing. But you have to you have to watch it back and and, and self analyze and you know just you know just really you know look at it and say right you know what what could I do differently or you know I think Donald McDonald who's who's been on the course quite a bit I don't know whether if Mark Mark spoke to you about Donald Donald um, Donald has, has given the group a really good which I, I find a really good. Um, a, a good technique that he he uses um, for self reflection, and, and it's three it's three simple questions, and and, and basically look, his thought process behind it is that when you're asked to self reflect, I think it's very very easy to to always pick out the negatives, and you know, firstly the first things if, if you ask someone how they felt that it went, that one of the first things they'll tell you is, is how bad it was, or, or you know what they done wrong, and you know the first thing that he he asked you to do is, is look for the positives and you know what went well you know and, and that, that kind of then I think sets your mind in a positive place for the, for the rest of it and you know then it probably allows you to then honestly reflect on on what, what you've done or or you know what you've said in, in the, the introduction so then the second part you know it's about looking at like what did you find tough so his question is what, what did I find challenging so you then obviously write down the bits you, you found challenging, like whether it's standing up in front of the group or whether it's you don't like talking about yourself, um, you know, or you find that difficult, or you know, you found it difficult if you were doing a presentation, you weren't you weren't great on computers and you found that difficult or or, or whatever. And, and then the last part is like if you got the chance to do it all again, like well, what would you change in the future? So so it then gets you into that mindset of like if, if I'm faced with this challenge again, I know the areas that I want to improve. So I just I just find that that part, um, you know, the self-reflection part is something that, you know, stepping out with your comfort zone, self-reflection is all stuff that I'd probably not really thought about um, until I went on this course. When I met you there last month, you were on at the convention, you were on your way yeah. to Philadelphia Union Academy for a few days. I was, yeah. What stood out there and, and what differences did you see from the academy model in the MLS, the, the one you've you've seen at home? Yeah, so going into Philadelphia was brilliant. You know, I think 
Um, I have to obviously thank Tommy, Tommy Wilson, and, and Ian Munro for sorting it out. You know, they were they were excellent, and um, you know, I've obviously got in touch with them because I think Mark had, Mark had mentioned about coming out to the convention in Baltimore, which you know I'd obviously never been across to before, probably because of the timing of it. You know, it's normally through the season over here, so you know. The fact I could get out to that, and then I've got, I, I was looking to tie it in with a with a club visit and and try and do that part of my pro license that I needed to do. So, you know, to get into Philadelphia was great, and I think you know one of the first things that stood out straight away for me was like the openness and the willingness of all the staff at the club to share their ideas and uh, and the different processes that they go through and the practices that they do, and um, you know right from from the first day when I went in and, you know, the, the academy wasn't on and the first thing I went in, so we went to the pre-academy, um, which was obviously loads of kids uh, just playing playing games and, and enjoying, like, I think it was the match day that I went in, so they just, they just play games amongst each other and, um, yeah, so the pre-academy staff were great, you know, they were, they were really, really helpful and, and, and give me an insight into how they how they work and, and how they do it and um, I think that runs from under eights to under elevens and then the academy starts on the twelves. So yeah the academy the academy what I thought was really good about the academy, like our hearts we had had like a serious amount of injuries at first team level and you know you, you kinda of look and you think, look what can we do differently and you know, is there something up with the pitches? Is it the changing of the pitches? Is it going from Astro to grass and you know, you, you sometimes look for reasons um, that sometimes potentially aren't there, but you, you do always look for reasons as to why something is, is happening. And um, I think the academy, when I met Bill Knowles, who's in charge, of, he's the director of the athletic development training. I don't know if you've, you've come across that. Um, that's basically, uh, it's, like, it's like a pre, a pre it's, it's probably what we would call pre-activation, but it's, it goes into a bit more depth with it. You know, I think they break it down into four um, pillars. You know, the, the, the four pillars are, the first one was gymnastics. You know, they, they do gymnastics with the players to build up the coordination, the core strength, uh, the mobility. You know, it gives, it, they, they feel it gives the players like, confidence um, and it gives them like focus and control. So they, they do they do gymnastics as part of this um, athletic development training. And then they talk about having you know, multi-directional speed and agility, which then basically focuses on focuses on the the sprinting and, and, and running techniques that they use, um, the deceleration techniques, different changes of direction. You know, again, looking at coordination and, and then strength, and then they go into st- the strength training. The third pillar is the strength training, um, which again is is probably stuff that most teams would do. The resistance training, body weight training. You know, the looking at the whole body, upper and lower. Um, and then the, the final pillar that they use is competitive coordination games. You know, and they use that for team building. You know, strategies on on how to win the game. Um, you know, athletic puzzles and, and skill development. And that, that that was something that I found fascinating because it's not something that I'd seen before. You know, you know, I think oh, everything I've kind of been used to and kind of seen, and you know, even on the courses, it's you know, the activations and pre-activations and you know, the, the guys, you know, the sports scientists guys maybe have them for 10, 15, 20 minutes prior to training. And, you know, you, you do wonder, is that enough to help, um, you know, prevent injuries? And, and I just felt this, you know, I think they do this and they, and they kind of give ownership to the players 
you know, they teach them the right technique and they give to give the ownership to the players to make sure they're doing it properly. Um, and it was something that I thought I, I thought was quite unique in a way that you know I've, I've never seen a football team, you know, doing gymnastics training or anything like that. You know, for for the flexibility, I, I just I found it fascinating, and I, and I thought that for me was one of the one of the, the best things that I've seen out there. Um, and then when we went, I actually went and then met the first team. Now the manager Jim Corton was again was different class. He was he was very accommodating. Um, you know, just he gave me like a, a hard drive stick with, with all all their information on it and just said, look, just take what you need. Which you know, some managers are probably quite protective over over what they have and and what they give out. And you know, I was obviously very grateful to Jim for for allowing me that access. Um, you know, into their philosophies and what and what they're looking to do and. One thing I did like about the club as well is they know they know they're not one of the biggest clubs in the league. You know, financially they can't probably compete um, with the top top clubs. You know, for players etc. So they they know they need to find ways um, and other ways that they can they can maybe compete at that level. And you know, they're always striving for that um, that new that new thing that's coming out. And you know, I think one of the parts of their you know philosophy is, is about being uh, innovative and, and you know having innovation within the club and you know a couple of the staff that I spoke to you know well all the staff I spoke to were, were very good about explaining the roles but you know Jay Cooney the, the head of analysis was, was talking to me about how, how they're trying to you know look ahead into what, what's coming next in analysis and you know you, you would probably look at what's out there now and think there's not much else to do but they, they, they see, you know, getting VR headsets and, and putting them on the players and, you know, potentially putting players in situations um, on on the pitch with the VR headset on as ways to to develop the players, you know, and, and the decision-making. And it was, again, it was something that, you know, you just, I hadn't ever considered, you know. So it, it just, it really made me think about, you know, always trying to look to that next thing rather than, just accepting what's out there just now. We're going to take our second and final break here to tell you about the aluminum folding dynamo goal from Bounce Athletics. The world's most portable and durable small-sided goal, weighing only 19 pounds, takes only five seconds to set up or fold flat. The dynamo goal is utilised by the entire North American soccer spectrum from rec programmes to MLS clubs to create a dynamic small-sided training and game environment. Available in 3x5 and 4x6 size, the Dynamo Goal requires no staking, so it is perfect on all training surfaces. Net customization is also available for those programs looking to create an even more professional training environment. The goals start at only $257 per goal with free shipping, and Modern Soccer Coach listeners can get a $50 discount on their order when they use the offer code MODERN, not case sensitive, at checkout. Visit www.dynamogoal.com for more details. Coaching the U20s and then working with first team players and those, I suppose, those younger players, what's the difference between how you work with a younger player on a day to day at a pro club than how you, you work with a, with a senior pro? I think, I think for me, like when you're working with the kids, um, whether it's in the 20s or below, I think. You know, you're, you're trying to you're trying to get them ready for first team football, and you know, I think there comes a stage where 
you know, you need to start focusing on winning because because ultimately that that for me is one of the biggest differences between you know reserve team or under twenty three football to first team football. Like the result actually matters. You know, I think at first team level, if if you're not getting the results, then ultimately you know you're going to lose your job, and you know or the manager's going to lose his job, and and that then leads to the uncertainty we spoke about earlier. So, you know. I, it's trying to it's trying to prepare the young kids and, and get them ready for that that mental battle that you know that maybe going to face because you know you can in reserve games you know they can for me like you look at some of the players in reserve team football and you know they they can be different class and and there's that there's not that pressure on them but then when they step up the first team and they're playing in front of eighteen to twenty thousand people or or maybe more at times you know there's that expectation and that there's that pressure on them to perform and I think it's just it's just trying to help them and get them ready for that um, mentally more than anything you know I think physically yes you're trying to build them up and you're trying to make sure that when they do go in they're physically capable and they're, they're prepared for what, what lies ahead but I think that mental side of it you know I think can sometimes get get overlooked um, and I do I do think that is, 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 is massive in the game Yeah that's where the last couple to finish up just that's where have you seen the Michael Vick 30 for 30? I haven't, no. Sorry, oh, haven't. That's, uh, I just watched it a couple of nights ago. It's like, oh, it's unbelievable about... I'll have to look out for Oh, that. like it blows you away, just the whole... Like, like what you're saying there is like he was he was obviously a top talent um, at the college and he, he kind of re- reinvented the quarterback position. But then when he went professional, it was like... Thirty million guaranteed, kind of stuff like what? So well, much, so much money that he didn't even know how much was in it. When you have a young player that is making a, a super talent that's going to make the jump to first team, and everything starts getting bigger, the crowds, the pressure, the expectations. I mean, what? How can a club, I suppose, prepare that? Is it? Is it from a an individual coach that's going to try and get in their ear? Is it from a psychology at a young level, or like what do you think is the biggest? factor in helping them I, I i think that throughout throughout it when they come up to you know when they come up to reserve team and first team level there's always there's always a coach that has a connection with them and there's always you know a coach that's maybe closer to them than than another coach and i think you know when 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 you recognize you have that relationship with, with the player i think it's important that that you do what you can to help them and, and i think you know a, a lot of clubs now I think in Scotland you know when I first came up to Scotland uh, to Dundee United I, I remember there being a club chaplain and I I, 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 I remember thinking oh what's the chaplain but like he was basically there like probably as a, as a psychologist or a sounding board you know if you had any issues and I think I think as we spoke about earlier each individual is different and and I think some some players probably you know need that confidant to go and speak to and they need someone to you know if they have any issues they like to get their issues off their chest there's others that use them issues to drive them on um, I, I, as a player I was never someone that I never felt like I needed to go and speak to someone um, I always tried to just you know motivate myself in a way that I could um, but yeah I think I think as a coach if you, if you build that relationship with the player and, and you, you're on good terms with them and, and you have you have that that relationship again I'm using that word a lot but if you have that relationship with them where you can you can go and you can speak to them and you can you can go and help them as best you can and you can you can maybe t- 
talk to them about experiences that you've had. You can you can never obviously get inside their head, and but you can you can probably you probably put it in a way where if you ask the right questions, then then they'll maybe come back with the right questions that that you, you're wanting off them, you know. And mm. I think um, I think that's when you can you can help them, and you can and if if they are struggling, I think you need and you, and you can't help them. It's trying to point them in the right way that you can get them in, into the right person. Because I think as you spoke about earlier. You know the psychology side of it, and I think you know, uh, you know, a couple of players um, from previously at Hearts there that, that went to see a, a sports psychologist, uh, psychologist off their own back, um, just to try and help them deal with, with issues and 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 the pressures of, of playing for a club like Hearts. Mm. Easy one to finish. Why have <laughs> talked a lot about Scottish football? Why has Irish football struggled to develop? You know the the players that were coming through. Uh, why has that dried up over the past 10, 15 years, do you think? See, if we knew that answer, Gary, we'd be, we'd be <laughs> rich men, wouldn't we? <laughs> no. <laughs> do you know something? That is, it's funny because it is something that, you know, obviously you look at and, and you want your, your your national team to do well and your country to do well. And I've kind of looked at that for a while and you kind of think, like, you know, you look at the the players that come through previously, like Robbie Keane and Damien Duff and... Uh, and the top top quality players, and they played at a really really high level. And then, and then you think, right, why why aren't we producing that? And, and for me, I, you know, the way the game has gone, probably in the last 10, 15, 20 years, like where you know clubs now have a global market rather than you know probably when I was growing up, um, and and the players we talked about there were growing up. You know, clubs probably didn't have as big a reach as they had. You know, so the players were only competing with, you know, maybe the, the countries in the UK and potentially, you know, one or two other European countries, probably like France and, and maybe, you know, um, Spain, Germany. But now they're competing against kids. You know, if a club sees a kid in America that they want to go and sign and bring into the academy, they can they can do it because they can financially afford it. Mm. So I think opportunities now for kids in Ireland are probably, you know, unless you're exceptionally talented are probably limited you know and I think once you know like I, I remember Robbie Keane from years and years ago he, he played with my dad's side Crumlin and you, you always knew just from looking at him that he was going to be a top top talent the way he trained the way he played um, but yeah I think I think now it, it's harder for, for kids to, to you know to, to, tr to really you know try and make a, an impact you know because again you know even with the global reach for academies if if players aren't performing at first team level, you know, nine times out of ten, if, if a club can go and buy a player, they will buy a player. Um, and, and it takes, you know, it takes certain set of circumstances and a and a certain type of manager to to give players that opportunity. Like you look at obviously, you know, not it's not Irish, but you look at the boy Billy Gilmore, who's just gone in at um, Chelsea under Frank Lampard. You know, you wonder if if Chelsea hadn't have had that transfer ban. You know, would the young players at that club have have got the chance, the chances that they've had? And you know, so it, it, as I said, it does sometimes take you know certain set of circumstances, certain manager, that little bit of luck. Um, you know, again, like you go back to, to that, that plays a big part in it. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know that you, you need to perform at the right time when the right person is watching, and um, you know, and then obviously you need a manager that that really really appreciates you as a player, and I think. Going back to the problem with Ireland, it's it's a hard one to, to pinpoint because, as I said, it's 
it's um, it's something that you know I have thought about and, I, and I've tried to find answers for. And you know, I kind of come back to the fact now that it's 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 a global game rather than you know just one where clubs probably are looking you know over the wall or Ireland and thinking they can get a couple of good players quite cheap. Yeah, and they were always the the project players, weren't they? Was because they were always when I was growing up, it was always a player who was not the Robbie Keynes of the world, but it was always an underdeveloped player who, you know, after two or three years of living in England, they could be, they could get that physical side of the game. But now, maybe as you're saying, those the worldwide reach means that you don't have to get projects anymore. You can get the finished product from a different country. Yeah, spot on. I think, you know, that's that's kind of where my mind is. With I may be totally off the mark, you know. I think from my own point of view when I was with the 20s at heart you know I, I see in Ireland because obviously you know I, I, I've played my football there as a kid and, and I, I know there's a lot of potential in Ireland and I, so I kind of look down that route at maybe bringing a couple of players across and and it can be quite difficult as well because you know sometimes you know with the the compensation that it maybe costs you know I think if a club like Liverpool, Man United, you know Chelsea, or Arsenal want to take a player from from Ireland, there's no real issues with them paying compensation or, or paying clubs what they're due, and, and rightly so. But when a when a club like maybe you know Hearts or, or Dundee United or a team in Scotland that maybe hasn't got the finances to go like there's you know sixty to a hundred thousand thousand euro for a player, you know it becomes difficult to, for a, to sign a player. You know that, as you said, there isn't the finished article. You know when when that money could be invested in the first team for the manager to help him get results. So it then becomes, you know, you, you have to be quite cute and quite savvy how you do do deals, and you, you need the teams in Ireland to be on board with that and to try and help you with that, and and you know probably realise that you know it's for the potential um, of giving the kid a career, and and further down the line you might see returns on that. You know because I think we had we had a couple where. We managed to work deals to get players across, and um, it was more on the basis of you know if they if they get into the first team, you know you'll get X. If if they maybe get sold on, you'll you'll get a percentage sell on. So you know you, you try and bulk up the the back end of the deal that the club will get what they deserve and a little bit more for for allowing you maybe to, to take the player across and and give them that opportunity. But there are clubs and there were clubs that you know. You know, wanted money up front, and and we could we just couldn't compete with that. Which you know, it's unfortunate for the kid because you kind of look and think, you know, they would have had a fantastic opportunity to come and play at a club where, you know, the manager wanted to give young players a chance, and mm. and and potentially, you know, that could have really kickstarted their careers and, and got some got some playing. But as I said, it's you know, some clubs have the the eye on what they're due now, and and I, and I, and I totally get that because. You know, a club receiving maybe ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand euros could keep that club going for for a, a number of years. You know, so so I, I get the whole reasoning behind it. I just think sometimes, you know, we need to think about the kid and think about you know the potential that you know could could go on, go on, you know, look to help them have a career in the game. Brilliant, yeah. Keep an eye on that one. Maybe it'll change in the next couple of years. Well, John, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Top class. No, thank you. Thanks very much, Gary. Thanks very much for having me on. We'll, uh, we'll get you on again uh, towards maybe the end of the 
Wouldn't I do a, a pro license review, get you and Spalders on, have a good chat? Get us on together. Yeah, that'd be great. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good man. Thanks so much to John for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting topic because when I spoke to John before about what we were going to chat about and I started you know, working through it, it's something that I do think as coaches, and, and we get a lot of them even at this time now, that sharing game models and philosophies, and, and that's all great in the planning process, but the reality of the game is is that you're probably going to get your first opportunity in this game during a situation or into an environment that is not perfect. And that's not to say that it's going to be day one of the preseason. It may be aspects such as limited funding. It may be aspects such as challenges with facilities. It might be the timing. It might be the results in a slump. But usually the people who do get their break in the game get it at a, at a time that maybe is not perfect. So with that in mind, should we now be looking at educating ourselves potentially as going in when the conditions are not right? And w what does a game model have if you don't have X, Y and Z? And it might be difficult. So what's the answer to it? Well, being adaptable as a coach would be my advice. But then also when you're listening to John there, that takes on different levels and different layers because that's an open-mindedness to taking players' perspective and you know what the players are going through at the time and looking at youth development and looking at the role of what players have to go through in their journey. And I thought that was really, really intriguing because... You never really hear about that aspect of what the players are going through when the managers get sacked. And I think the problem that we have is that we pick up the, the, the Twitter. It used to be the newspaper, but we pick up Twitter now and we say that the players got the manager sacked. But that's often not the case. Like Sometimes just results and everyone works hard and it doesn't work out. So it's a good insight and I think it's a really, really good perspective. And I would urge any young coach what they're going through their trying to plan out a career that is non-linear and there's going to be ups and downs is to try and work through your own processes to be as adaptable as possible and listen to as many different perspectives and keep an open mind and to say well if I did go in here I wouldn't be able to play that type of style or I wouldn't be able to manage in a certain way so how do I keep my options open and and stay true to my principles and my beliefs as well because that is an art in itself so Really, really enjoyed that from John. Would love to hear your thoughts at Gary Kernine on Instagram, at Gary Kernine on Twitter. Said at the start, plenty of content and webinars going on at the minute. Get yourself over to modernsoccercoach.com. Please join in. Stay safe and hope to speak to you soon. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, Head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.